Part 1, Chapter 4, Section 34 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss. Translated from the German by George Eliot. Part 1 history of the birth and childhood of jesus chapter four birth and earliest events of the life of jesus section thirty four the magi and their star the flight into egypt and the murder of the children of bethlehem criticism of the supernaturalistic view in the gospel of matthew also we have a narrative of the messiah's entrance into the world it differs considerably in detail from that of Luke, which we have just examined. But in the former part of the two accounts, there is a general similarity. See Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and following. The object of both narratives is to describe the solemn introduction of the messianic infant, the heralding of his birth undertaken by heaven itself, and his first reception among men in both attention is called to the new-born messiah by a celestial phenomenon according to luke it is an angel clothed in brightness according to matthew it is a star as the apparitions are different so accordingly are the recipients the angel addresses simple shepherds the star is discovered by eastern magi who are able to interpret for themselves the voiceless sign both parties are directed to bethlehem the shepherds by the words of the angel the magi by the instructions they obtain in jerusalem and both do homage to the infant the poor shepherds by singing hymns of praise the magi by costly presents from their native country but from this point the two narratives begin to diverge widely in luke all proceeds happily the shepherds return with gladness in their hearts the child experiences no molestation he is presented in the temple on the appointed day thrives and grows up in tranquillity in matthew on the contrary affairs take a tragical turn the inquiry of the wise men in jerusalem concerning the new-born king of the jews is the occasion of a murderous decree on the part of herod against the children of bethlehem a danger from which the infant jesus is rescued only by a sudden flight into egypt whence he and his parents do not return to the holy land till after the death of herod thus we have here a double proclamation of the messianic child we might however suppose that the one by the angel in luke would announce the birth of the messiah to the immediate neighborhood the other by means of the star to distant lands but as according to matthew the birth of jesus became known at jerusalem which was in the immediate vicinity by means of the star if this representation be historical that of luke according to which the shepherds were the first to spread abroad with praises to god from verses seventeen and twenty 
that which had been communicated to them as glad tidings for all people from verse ten cannot possibly be correct so on the other hand if it be true that the birth of jesus was made known in the neighborhood of bethlehem as luke states by an angelic communication to the shepherds matthew must be in error when he represents the first intelligence of the event as subsequently brought to jerusalem which is only from two to three hours distant from bethlehem by the magi but as we have recognized many indications of the unhistorical character of the announcement by the shepherds given in luke the ground is left clear for that of matthew which must be judged of according to its inherent credibility our narrative commences as if it were an admitted fact that astrologers possessed the power of recognizing a star announcing the birth of the messiah that eastern magi should have knowledge of a king of the jews to whom they owed religious homage might indeed excite our surprise but contending ourselves here with remarking that seventy years later an expectation did prevail in the east that a ruler of the world would arise from among the jewish people we pass on to a yet more weighty difficulty according to this narrative it appears that astrology is right when it asserts that the birth of great men and important revelations in human affairs are indicated by astral phenomena an opinion long since consigned to the region of superstition it is therefore to be explained how this deceptive science could in this solitary instance prove true though in no other case are its inferences to be relied on the most obvious explanation from the orthodox point of view is an appeal to the supernatural intervention of god who in this particular instance in order to bring the distant magi unto jesus accommodated himself to their astrological notions and caused the anticipated star to appear but the adoption of this expedient involves very serious consequences for the coincidence of the remarkable sequel with the astrological prognostic could not fail to strengthen the belief not only of the magi and their fellow countrymen but also of the jews and christians who were acquainted with the circumstances in the spurious science of astrology thereby creating incalculable error and mischief if therefore it be unadvisable to admit an extraordinary divine intervention and if the position that in the ordinary course of nature important occurrences on this earth are attended by changes in the heavenly bodies be abandoned the only remaining explanation lies in the supposition of an accidental coincidence but to appeal to chance is in fact either to say nothing or to renounce the supernaturalistic point of view but the orthodox view of this account not only sanctions the false science of astrology but also confirms the false interpretation of a passage in the prophets for as the magi following their star proceed in the right direction so the chief priests and scribes of jerusalem whom herod on learning the arrival and object of the magi 
summons before him and questions concerning the birthplace of the king of the jews interpret the passage in micah chapter five verse one as signifying that the messiah should be born in bethlehem and to this signification the event corresponds now such an application of the above passage can only be made by forcing the words from their true meaning and from all relation with the context according to the well-known practice of the rabbins for independently of the question whether or not the word mashal in the passage cited the messiah be intended the entire context shows the meaning to be not that the expected governor who was to come forth out of bethlehem would actually be born in that city but only that he would be a descendant of david whose family sprang from bethlehem thus allowing the magi to have been rightly directed by means of the rabbinical exegesis of the oracle a false interpretation must have hit on the truth either by means of divine intervention and accommodation or by accident the judgment pronounced in the case of the star is applicable here also after receiving the above answer from the sanhedrin herod summons the magi before him and his first question concerns the time at which the star appeared from verse seven why did he wish to know this the sixteenth verse tells us that he might thereby calculate the age of the messianic child and thus ascertain up to what age it would be necessary for him to put to death the children of bethlehem so as not to miss the one announced by the star but this plan of murdering all the children of bethlehem up to a certain age that he might destroy the one likely to prove fatal to the interests of his family was not conceived by herod until after the magi had disappointed his expectation that they would return to jerusalem a deception which if we may judge from his violent anger on account of it from verse sixteen herod had by no means anticipated prior to this according to verse eight it had been his intention to obtain from the magi on their return so close a description of the child his dwelling and circumstances that it would be easy for him to remove his infantine rival without sacrificing any other life it was not until he had discovered the stratagem of the magi that he was obliged to have recourse to the more violent measure for the execution of which it was necessary for him to know the time of the star's appearance how fortunate for him then that he had ascertained this time before he had decided on the plan that made the information important but how inconceivable that he should make a point which was only indirectly connected with his original project the subject of his first and most eager interrogation from verse seven herod in the second place commissions the magi to acquaint themselves accurately with all that concerns the royal infant and to impart their knowledge to him on their return that he also may go and tender his homage to the child that is according to his real meaning take sure measures for putting him to death from verse eight such a proceeding on the part of an astute monarch like herod has long been held improbable 
even if he adopted to deceive the magi while in conference with them by adopting this friendly mask he must necessarily foresee that others would presently awaken them to the probability that he harbored evil designs against the child and thus prevent them from returning according to his injunction he might conjecture that the parents of the child on hearing of the ominous interest taken in him by the king would seek his safety by flight and finally that those inhabitants of bethlehem and its environs who cherished messianic expectations would not be a little confirmed in them by the arrival of the magi on all these grounds herod's only prudent measure would have been either to detain the magi in jerusalem and in the meantime by means of secret emissaries to dispatch the child to whom such peculiar hopes were attached and who must have been easy of discovery in the little village of bethlehem or to have given the magi companions who as soon as the child was found might at once have put an end to his existence even olhausen thinks that these strictures are not groundless and his best defence against them is the observation that the histories of all ages present unaccountable instances of forgetfulness a proof that the course of human events is guided by a supreme hand when the supernaturalist invokes the supreme hand in the case before us he must suppose that god himself blinded herod to the surest means of attaining his object in order to save the messianic child from a premature death but the other side of this divine contrivance is that instead of the one child many others must die there would be nothing to object against such a substitution in this particular case if it could be proved that there was no other possible mode of rescuing jesus from a fate inconsistent with the scheme of human redemption but if it be once admitted that god interposed supernaturally to blind the mind of herod and to suggest to the magi that they should not return to jerusalem we are constrained to ask why did not god in the first instance inspire the magi to shun jerusalem and proceed directly to bethlehem whither herod's attention would not then have been so immediately attracted and thus the disastrous sequel perhaps have been altogether avoided the supernaturalist has no answer to this question but the old-fashioned argument that it was good for the infants to die because they were thus freed by transient suffering from much misery and more especially from the danger of sinning against jesus with the unbelieving jews whereas now they had the honor of losing their lives for the sake of jesus and thus of ranking as martyrs and so forth the magi leave jerusalem by night the favorite time for traveling in the east the star which they seem to have lost sight of since their departure from home again appears and goes before them on the road to bethlehem until at length it remains stationary over the house that contains the wondrous child and its parents the way from jerusalem to bethlehem lies southward 
now the true path of erratic stars is either from west to east as that of the planets and of some comets or from east to west as that of other comets the orbits of many comets do indeed tend from north to south but the true motion of all these bodies is so greatly surpassed by their apparent motion from east to west produced by the rotation of the earth on its axis that it is imperceptible except at considerable intervals even the diurnal movement of the heavenly bodies however is less obvious on a short journey than the merely optical one arising from the observer's own change of place in consequence of which a star that he sees before him seems as long as he moves forward to pass on in the same direction through infinite space it cannot therefore stand still over a particular house and thus induce a traveller to halt there also on the contrary the traveller himself must halt before the star will appear stationary the star of the magi could not then be an ordinary natural star but must have been one created by god for that particular exigency and impressed by him with a peculiar law of motion and rest again this could not have been a true star moving among the systems of our firmament for such an one however impelled and arrested could never according to optical laws appear to pause over a particular house it must therefore have been something lower hovering over the earth's surface hence some of the fathers and apocryphal writers supposing it to have been an angel which doubtless might fly before the magi in the form of a star and take its station at a moderate height above the house of mary in bethlehem more modern theologians have conjectured that the phenomenon was a meteor both these explanations are opposed to the text of matthew the former because it is out of keeping with the style of our gospels to designate anything purely supernatural such as an angelic appearance by an expression that implies a merely natural object as a star the latter because a mere meteor would not last for so long a time as must have elapsed between the departure of the magi from their remote home and their arrival in bethlehem perhaps however it will be contended that god created one meteor for the first monition and another for the second many even of the orthodox expositors have found these difficulties in relation to the star so pressing that they have striven to escape at any cost from the admission that it preceded the magi in their way towards bethlehem and took its station directly over a particular house according to suskind whose explanation has been much approved the verb praegen or went before from verse nine which is in the imperfect tense does not signify that the star visibly led the magi on their way but is equivalent to the pluperfect which would imply that the star had been invisibly transferred to the destination of the magi before their arrival so that the evangelist intends to say the star which the magi had seen in the east and subsequently lost sight of 
suddenly made its appearance to them in Bethlehem above the house they were seeking. It had therefore preceded them. But this is a transplantation of rationalistic artifice into the soil of orthodox exegesis. Not only the word praegen, but the less flexible expression till it came, etc., denotes that the transit of the star was not an already completed phenomenon, but one brought to pass under the observation of the Magi. Expositors who persist in denying this must, to be consistent, go still farther and reduce the entire narrative to the standard of merely natural events. So, when Olhausen admits that the position of a star could not possibly indicate a single house, and hence the Magi must have inquired for the infant's dwelling, and only with childlike simplicity referred the issue as well as the commencement of their journey to a heavenly guide, he deserts his own point of view for that of the rationalists, and interlines the text with explanatory particulars, an expedient which he elsewhere justly condemns in Paulus and others. The Magi, then, enter the house, offer their adoration to the infant, and present to him gifts, the productions of their native country. One might wonder that there is no notice of astonishment which it must have excited in these men to find, instead of the expected prince, a child in quite ordinary perhaps indigent circumstances. It is not fair, however, to heighten the contrast by supposing, according to the common notion, that the Magi discovered the child in a stable lying in a manger, for this representation is peculiar to Luke, and is altogether unknown to Matthew, who merely speaks of a house in which the child was found. Then follows, in verse 10, the warning given to the Magi in a dream, concerning which, as before remarked, it were only to be wished that it had been vouchsafed earlier, so as to avert the steps of the Magi from Jerusalem, and thus, perchance, prevent the whole subsequent massacre. While Herod awaits the return of the Magi, Joseph is admonished by an angelic apparition in a dream to flee with the messianic child and its mother into Egypt for security. Verses 13 through 15. Adopting the evangelist's point of view, this is not attended with any difficulty. It is otherwise, however, with the prophecy which the above event is said to fulfill. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. In this passage, the prophet, speaking in the name of Jehovah, says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and called my son out of Egypt. We may venture to attribute, even to the most orthodox expositor, enough clear-sightedness to perceive that the subject of the first half of the sentence is also the object of the second, namely the people of Israel, who here, as elsewhere, for example, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, and Sirach chapter 36, verse 14, are collectively called the Son of God, and whose past deliverance under Moses out of their Egyptian bondage is the fact referred to, that, consequently, 
the prophet was not contemplating either the messiah or his sojourn into egypt nevertheless as our evangelist says in verse fifteen that the flight of jesus into egypt took place expressly that the above words of hosea might be fulfilled he must have understood them as a prophecy relating to christ must therefore have misunderstood them it has been pretended that the passage has a twofold application and though referring primarily to the israelitish people is not the less a prophecy relative to christ because the destiny of israel after the flesh was a type of the destiny of jesus but this convenient method of interpretation is not applicable here for the analogy would in the present case be altogether external and inane since the only parallel consists in the bare fact in both instances of a sojourn in egypt the circumstances under which the israelitish people and the child jesus sojourned there being altogether diverse when the return of the magi has been delayed long enough for herod to become aware that they have no intention to keep faith with him he decrees the death of all the male children in bethlehem and its environs up to the age of two years that being according to the statements of the magi as to the time of the star's appearance the utmost interval that could have elapsed since the birth of the messianic child from verses sixteen through eighteen this was beyond all question an act of the blindest fury for herod might easily have informed himself whether a child who had received rare and costly presents was yet to be found in bethlehem but even granting it not inconsistent with the disposition of an aged tyrant to the extent that schleiermacher supposed it were in any case to be expected that so unprecedented and revolting a massacre would be noticed by other historians than matthew but neither josephus who is very minute in his account of herod nor the rabbins who were assiduous in blackening his memory give the slightest hint of this decree the latter do indeed connect the flight of jesus into egypt with a murderous scene the author of which however is not herod but king Janaeus, and the victims not children but rabbins their story is evidently founded on a confusion of the occurrence gathered from the christian history with an earlier event for alexander Janaeus died forty years before the birth of christ macrobius who lived in the fourth century is the only author who notices the slaughter of the infants and he introduces it obliquely in a passage which loses all credit by confounding the execution of antipater who was so far from a child that he complained of his gray hairs with the murder of the infants renowned among the christians commentators have attempted to diminish our surprise at the remarkable silence in question by reminding us that the number of children of the given age in the petty village of bethlehem must have been small and by remarking that among the numerous deeds of cruelty by which the life of herod was stained this one would be lost sight of as a drop in the ocean but in these observations the specific atrocity of murdering innocent children however few 
is overlooked and it is this that must have prevented the deed if really perpetrated from being forgotten here also the evangelist cites in verses seventeen and eighteen a prophetic passage jeremiah chapter thirty one verse fifteen as having been fulfilled by the murder of the infants whereas it originally referred to something quite different namely the transportation of the jews to babylon and had no kind of reference to an event lying in remote futurity while jesus and his parents are in egypt herod the great dies and joseph is instructed by an angel who appears to him in a dream to return to his native country but as archelaus herod's successor in judea was to be feared he has more precise directions in a second oracular dream in obedience to which he fixes his abode at nazareth in galilee under the milder government of herod antipas in verses nineteen through twenty three thus in the compass of this single chapter we have five extraordinary interpositions of god an anomalous star and four visions for the star and the first vision we have already remarked one miracle might have been substituted not only without detriment but with advantage either the star or the vision might from the beginning have deterred the magi from going to jerusalem and by this means perhaps have averted the massacre ordained by herod but that the two last visions are not united in one is a mere superfluity for the direction to joseph to proceed to nazareth instead of bethlehem which is made the object of a special vision might just as well have been included in the first such a disregard even to prodigality of the lex parsimoni in relation to the miraculous one is tempted to refer to human imagination rather than to divine providence the false interpretations of old testament passages in this chapter are crowned by the last verse where it is said that by the settlement of the parents of jesus at nazareth was fulfilled the saying of the prophets he shall be called a nazarene now this passage is not to be found in the old testament and unless expositors losing courage take refuge in darkness by supposing that it is extracted from a canonical or apocryphal book now lost they must admit the conditional validity of one or other of the following charges against the evangelist if as it has been alleged he intended to compress the old testament prophecies that the messiah would be despised into the oracular sentence he shall be called a nazarene i e the citizen of a despised city we must accuse him of the most arbitrary mode of expression or if he be supposed to give a modification of nasir we must tax him with the most violent transformation of the word and the grossest perversion of its meaning for even if contrary to the fact this epithet were applied to the messiah in the old testament it could only mean either that he would be a nazarite which jesus never was or that he would be crowned as joseph in genesis chapter forty nine verse twenty six in no case that he would be brought up in the petty town of nazareth 
the most probable interpretation of this passage and that which has the sanction of the jewish christians questioned on the subject by jerome is that the evangelist here alludes to isaiah chapter eleven verse one where the messiah is called netzer ishai as elsewhere tsamach but in every case there is the same violence done to the word by attaching to a mere appellative of the messiah an entirely fictitious relation to the name of the city of nazareth end of section thirty four